So who will you call when it's time for you to sell your home and you have legal questions about a power of attorney, a transfer on death deed, and is your legal house in order? We'll talk about that next. Welcome to Change Agents, brought to you by Lisa Dunn with Remax Results. Lisa is a licensed real estate agent and senior real estate specialist in the state of Minnesota. Lisa works with older adults to help them upsize and downsize. And now, here's Lisa Dunn. Welcome to the show. With me, as always, is my friend and producer at Minnesota Podcasting, Marshall Saunders. Hi, Lisa. How's it going? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Very good. How are things going in the world of real estate? The world of real estate is always changing, always interesting, and there are always people buying and selling. Perfect. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) That is just the one constant that no matter what is happening with the economy, there are always people that need to move, especially when they're older. And there are always people that that need housing. You know, Mm -hmm. in general, there's a shortage of housing across the metro, and that likely is not going to change anytime soon for that 400, 450,000 and under home. We're not building any more of those. Sure. Yeah. So... That's, a, that's the good news. Always active. That's good. <laughs> Always active. Well, I have somebody special I want to introduce you to. Oh, yeah? This is somebody that I have known, and I was thinking about it. I think I've known this person for about 15 years. We first met while we were doing a seminar together at the Women's Club of Minneapolis. He's nodding and scrunching his face together. He can't believe he's known me that long. So today, I would like to introduce you to Craig Goldman. He has been an attorney for 28 years. Craig is focused on estate planning, probate, and guardianships, and for the last 11 years has had his own firm. And today he lives in St. Paul with his beautiful wife. We love his beautiful wife and his three perfect sons. Craig also coaches baseball and teaches aspiring law students as a professor at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. Thank you for being here, Craig. Couldn't be happier. Happy to be here. So, Craig, if somebody is thinking about getting their home ready for the market, oftentimes they might ask me, what kinds of questions or what do I need to do to plan? And that's such a broad question. I think that when you're older, there's a certain number of things that would be a really good idea to have in place. And so do you want to take that and kind of run with it. What do you think at a bare minimum, if if a person were a prudent, thoughtful planner, what should they have in place? That is a fantastic question. There's a few things that everyone should have in order. And um, when it comes to the, the opening part of your question, when somebody's thinking about maybe getting ready to sell their house, what are the planning steps they should take? And, and part of that might be a recognition of why they are starting to think about selling their house. Is it a purely financial move? Is it um, more commonly it's related to just some aging issues and there's too many stairs in the house and too many levels in the house and, and I don't want to worry about the furnace anymore and the shoveling and the um, those sorts of issues where it, it's health related. 
Um, and both of those require some planning to make sure that if things do go downhill more quickly than we want them to, uh, that we have the right people with the necessary authority to take care of you. And so the prudent planner is going to have uh, some pretty basic estate planning documents in place. Two documents are considered disability planning documents. There's sort of disability planning and then there's death planning, which is creepy, so we'll talk about that later. Uh, the disability planning side of things, uh, in Minnesota, we break that out into decisions about your medical care and decisions about your financial issues. Some states allow you to cover both of those things in one document. Um, in Minnesota, we don't, which I think is the better approach because you may not want the same people with the authority to make those kinds of decisions. So having them separate documents is really a nice way to go. On the medical side, uh, the document that we use today is called a health care directive. That takes the place of what we used to call living wills. You can't do living wills in Minnesota anymore. You haven't been able to for years. The document now is called a health care directive, and it's a document that says anytime I'm incapacitated, whether it's for a short period of time or a longer period of time or permanently, this is the person that I want making medical decisions for me. They can talk to my doctor. They can have access to my medical records. They get over HIPAA privacy barriers. They are my voice. And if my first choice can't do it for one reason or another or doesn't want to do it, here's a second choice and maybe a third choice and as far down as makes you comfortable. That document is, is really an important document and they're quite easy to get. Any doctor's office is going to have one for you. Any hospital is going to have one for you. You can get on and Google Minnesota Healthcare Directive and get an abundance of forms. There's no required form to these documents. It's a document that very often people think, I don't need that because I have my spouse or because I have you know, my kids. We in Minnesota do not have an automatic person there to make medical decisions for you. And so if you're sick and a decision needs to be made in a hurry and you have your spouse over here making um, a decision and the kids come rushing in and have a different opinion about things, the doctor is standing there thinking, one of these groups of people is going to sue me here, whatever I do. And so everything comes grinding to a halt. And it gets even worse sometimes in blended family situations where um, maybe my wife of 40 years died a couple of years ago, I reconnected with a nice lady from church, and we just got married a year ago. I've got three grown kids from my first marriage. They're all in their 30s and 40s, and they get along well enough. But my kids don't think that my new wife ought to be the one making life and death decisions for me, and she thinks that she ought to, and I didn't put it down in writing ahead of time who it is that I do want with that authority. The problems are self-evident, right? The conflict is there, and, and that's a big problem. So having a healthcare directive, particularly since it's so easy to do, solves all of those problems. Um, and then on the financial side, the equivalent document is called a power of attorney. That's a little bit harder to get a hold of. Um, they're a little bit more complicated to fill out. That is something that usually um, you're best off having an attorney help you with. And that's a document that says, again, if I'm incapacitated, this is the person who can collect my income and pay my bills and sell my house and hire my realtor and file my taxes and deal with my financial advisors. All of those financial things that need to keep happening for me, but I'm incapacitated, this is who I want doing that for me. 
And again, first choice, second choice, third choice. It's another document that a lot of people say, you know, just sort of their initial thought is, well, everything is with my wife and I is joint. So I don't, I don't need that. And again, that's probably not the case. Um, much of your things may be jointly held, but when it comes to things like IRAs, right? They're not JRAs. They're not joint retirement accounts. They're individual retirement accounts. They are just in your name. Your 401k, probably your life insurance policies. Most policies are individually owned rather than joint policies. Um, when it comes in into your world, when it comes to selling a house, even if you own a house jointly with your spouse, it still requires both spouses' uh, signatures to, to sell the house or to buy a new house. And just because you are somebody's spouse or even because you're a joint owner on the house does not give you the authority to, to access things. So you can't file taxes. You can't talk to Social Security and get information about your spouse. You can't tap into their retirement money to pay for some nursing home bills. You can't do it without the necessary paperwork. And that's what a power of attorney does. But that paperwork is readily available, right? I can wink, wink, Google <laughs> and find all the forms that I need online. What would be wrong with me using a power of attorney form that I download from some obscure legal, I'm using the quote signs, you can't see that, <laughs> legal website. Uh, you can. It's risky. Uh, you know, sort of the, the cliche answer for, for people like me is um, you don't need a professional for anything. You can be your own dentist. That's a mistake. You can be your own doctor. That's a mistake. You can be your own mechanic. In my case, that's a tremendous mistake. <laughs> right? It, it's a difference between can you, yes, should you, maybe not. Certainly on the healthcare directive side of things, you can do that yourself. Um, the power of attorney is a little different. They're, they're a persnickety kind of a document. And when you take it to the bank or you take it to the financial advisor or you send a copy to the IRS they are just as likely to not be familiar with it, especially if it doesn't look exactly the way the, the ones that they're used to seeing look, and they're going to reject it, and you don't know why, and you don't know how to fix the problem. Um, it, it really is one of those things where you're best off having somebody who knows how to put it together put it together. So those two documents are disability planning documents, and sort of to, to bring it back here in, into your world. If you're planning on maybe selling the house because one of you or maybe both of you is uh, continuing to age and you're worried about cognitive issues, you're worried about physical issues, uh, and if things go you know bad sort of quickly or one of you is still doing well but the other one is, is declining a little more rapidly, you don't want to get to a spot where it's time to sell the house, but one of you is no longer able to understand the documents that you're being required to sign to sell the house or to hire a realtor or to do any of that stuff, and you're going to wish you had those planning documents in place. Then the next question is, what if we didn't plan, and what if we don't have those documents? I would say there are probably 60% of my clients, that is the case. Most of us don't age at the same rate, right? And most of us have different health issues than our partner does. Um, and it's very, very common. We did an episode with my cousin. Her father had dementia, and her mom was doing great, but they moved because he has dementia. And that story is so common right. with the folks that I work with. So what happens if, if the planning didn't happen and one person is 
suffering from a diagnosis of dementia. Yeah, that's where there is a system in place, but it involves the court system. And we are grateful that that system is there as a backup. Rough estimates are that about a third of the population has an estate plan in place, meaning two-thirds don't. That's high-quality math right there for you. (laughs) If you don't, that doesn't mean the need is never going to arise, right? Uh, And so if the need arises and it's too late to do these documents, sometimes we can still kind of squeak them in. Frankly, the, the... competency bar to execute these documents is not super high. Uh, and, and again, that's another thing that we're grateful for, that you can be down the road with an Alzheimer's diagnosis or, or a dementia diagnosis and still be competent to sign these documents. Um, but if that day has passed and it's not coming back, uh, then we have to involve the court. And just like there's two separate documents that you can do in advance, the healthcare directive and the power of attorney, there is also two different areas uh, in the court system to deal with with issues like this. There is something called a guardianship, and that is a person who is authorized by the court to make personal and medical and living arrangement decisions for somebody who is no longer uh, competent. And on the financial side, the person is called a conservator, or the, the entity is called a conservatorship. That is a person who's authorized by the court to make all of those financial decisions, and they're the ones then who would have the authority to sign all of those real estate closing papers. Um, So it is nice that those structures are in place, but as uh, you might expect, anytime you're involving the court, it's public, um, which bothers a lot of people. It is slow. It's expensive. Requiring a guardianship or a conservatorship Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's going to get you where you need to be, but it really does represent sort of a a failure to properly plan ahead. Can I ask you what the cost might be with with court fees if you do have to go through that process? Yep. And it's all a little bit general because they move around a little bit and different attorneys charge different amounts for things like that. But but, uh, I can give you some ballpark numbers for sure. You either need to decide, are you going to seek a guardianship or a conservatorship, or both. Those are your choices, right? Maybe you have a power of attorney, but not a healthcare directive, or vice versa. You did the healthcare directive because you could do that on your own, and you never got around to the power of attorney. Or maybe you don't have either. So you either need a guardianship or a conservatorship or both. Just to file the paperwork with the court to make that request, um, each county charge is a little bit different, but it's about $325 um, for court filing fee give or take five or ten dollars. In terms of attorney fees, there are, as I mentioned before, this is quite a structured area. So there are some efficiencies to be gained with with employing attorney who does a lot of this because they've got their own templates and their own starting positions, right? Everybody's case is different, but there are some similarities and some overlaps that you can you can keep the costs down a little bit uh, with somebody who's experienced in that area. All of those forms still have to be filled out. There's steps that simply have to be taken, even if yours is a very simple case, um, not a lot of money or you know whatever the issue is, even if it's uncomplicated, you still can't skip any of the steps. Assuming you have no conflict, which is not always the case, um, assuming that the, the person themselves, the one that is, is uh, having the guardianship or the conservatorship sought, assuming they are okay with all of this, which is not always the case. Uh, a real straightforward 
program is probably going to run you 1500 to $2,000 on top of that court filing fee. And then there's just little, you know, you need certified copies of documents to file with the real estate world, and those are $15 each. And, you know, the, the little nickel and diming happens. Um, so it, it, to say $2,000 uh, to $2,500 when all is said and done uh, is probably a pretty close guess. My questions would have to do with trusts. And I've heard all about these living trusts and durable trusts and whatever and irrevocable trusts. What, how does that come into play with transferring assets? There are lots of different trusts out in the world. They fall into the, the realm, generally speaking, of death planning. Right? We spent the first part of this time talking about disability planning. Mm-hmm. And now we kind of flip over to um, the other side, what, ha- what happens post-death. How do we get things where they're supposed to go? How do we make that happen most efficiently? Um, how do we, again, if possible, keep out of the court system and, and all of its attendant delays and costs and things like that? So what's the best way to uh, make all that happen? And for most people, that component of their estate plan, the death planning part of it, involves either a will or a trust or some combination of the two. And sort of the biggest piece of education that that I work with 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 every client is getting them to understand that um, there is no generic trust out there. People come in and say, I need a trust. Well, there's lots of them, right? You can't just say we need a trust or we don't. There's many, many different kinds of trusts, and they each do their own unique little thing. Um, And a good estate plan is going to incorporate those trusts that are necessary, and it's going to ignore the trusts that are not necessary. And that's kind of how we put this third final component to your estate plan together. Um, So, for example, for people who own real estate in multiple states, it can get pretty wonky to die that way. And There's a particular kind of a trust that we'll circle back on um, that deals with those issues and how to avoid the complications of owning multi-state real estate. If you want to leave money to somebody who is under a disability, whether it's a child or a sibling or a friend or anybody who's under a disability, we don't want the inheritance from you to mess up their eligibility for different government benefit programs like Social Security, Disability, and Medicaid. Um, Those are asset-based programs, right? And if you dump a bunch of money on somebody, you can really screw that up. So there's a couple different kinds of trusts that you can deal with to avoid or, or at least minimize those problems. One's called a special needs trust and one's called a supplemental needs trust. That can be our next podcast together is the difference between those. Another kind of a trust exists to deal with taxes, uh, estate taxes in particular. Some people call it the death tax. It's dying with too much money. The government allows each of us to die with a certain amount of money, and if you die with more than that, you get taxed on the excess. That's the estate tax. In Minnesota, we have an estate tax for both the state of Minnesota and there is a federal one, and they have different freebie amounts that you're allowed to die with. The federal government right now allows each of us to die with around $11.5 million, give or take. Um, So combined, husband and wife can protect up to about $23 million. Um, Most everyone is below that. The state of Minnesota, though, has a much lower freebie amount. Right now, we're allowed each of us to die with $3 million, um, or again, a combined $6 million for uh, spouses. But when you start looking at retirement money, especially if both spouses are working, um, you know, investment money and real estate equity, um, that starts to hit 
what we consider regular people. Um, and so there are some trusts that exist to help figure out how to minimize or avoid those estate tax problems. And again, they're completely different from any of those other different kinds of trusts that we talked about. So when people come in and sort of plop down and say, you know, I, I need a trust, you need to sort of figure out where you're coming from. Most of the time, the trust that they are thinking about, when, when people just come in and say, I need a trust or my, my neighbor has a trust and it worked great for them when they died, they are talking about something called a revocable trust or a living trust. Uh, some people call them revocable living trusts. It's all the same kind of a trust. And that is... That particular kind of a trust is a probate avoidance tool. It is something that allows us to transfer the assets of somebody who just died without having to go through the probate system, which is great. It's a noble goal, right? Probate's not a monster. Used to be. When I started practicing, it kind of was. Uh, it's gotten a lot more efficient over time. Most of the time, nobody has to go to court. It's all done by mail. But it can still be, you know... 12 to 18 months and five or $6,000, even for a semi-easy one. Uh, and if we can avoid that, then great. Um, so it, it's a tool to help us avoid probate, that kind of a trust. And the way it works is this. Uh, the trust itself is an entity, a living, breathing entity separate from the individuals, whether it's a husband and wife or, or other kinds of spouses or a single person, just like a partnership or a corporation or an LLC, it's, a, it's an entity all by itself. So I can create the Craig Goldman Revocable Living Trust, and there it is. I just signed it on the bottom of page 25, and now I have this trust. The, the next step for me, uh, if I'm doing a good job, is to transfer the ownership of all my stuff from me as a person to the trustee of this trust so that me as a person, I don't own anything anymore. My house is held in the trust. Um, my financial accounts are held in the trust. Everything that I have is in that trust. So then when I die, there's nothing to go through probate because I don't own anything. My trust owns it, and my trust says what happens to it. And because I did that ahead of time, I don't have to go through the probate process. They work. The problem with them is, and, and I have a real problem in my practice with revocable trusts, 95% of the people who think they need them don't, uh, in my opinion. And here's why. Number one, that second step that I talked about where you got to transfer the ownership of your stuff into the trust, that's called funding the trust. And it almost never happens. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Sometimes it happens partially. But let's say I did that, um, and so I created this trust, and I did a really good job of funding the trust. I put my house in it. I put all my stuff in it. Um, and then, you know, 18 years later, I sold that house, and I bought a new house. And I didn't buy it in the name of the trust. I bought it in my name as a person. Or I opened up an investment account at Edward Jones and I forgot to put it in the trust. It's just in my name as a person. So when I die, most of my stuff is in the <laughs> trust, but there's still stuff in my name that's going to have to go through probate. Anyhow, I really just shot myself in the foot, right? Whatever I paid for that trust was money down the drain because it didn't avoid probate because I didn't fully fund it. So some of the other ways to avoid probate that, to me, are a little bit more effective are beneficiary designations. All of your financial accounts, from your checking account to your savings to CDs to investment accounts to life insurance to 401ks to IRAs, 
every financial account nowadays can have a beneficiary designation on it. Some places call them beneficiary designations. Some call them POD, it stands for pay on death. Some call them TOD, it stands for transfer on death. For our purposes, it's all the same thing. Um, it is something you set up ahead of time that designates where you want these dollars to go. And because you set that up ahead of time, it happens outside of the probate process. That's why those designations exist. So good beneficiary designations can take care of avoiding probate on all of your dollars. Then when it comes to things like your stuff, your personal property, you know, vehicles, there's shortcut forms for vehicles that you can deal with. Um, those sorts of things alone are hardly ever, if ever, um, the need to, to start a probate. What that leaves us with for people are real estate assets. And back in the day, um, that was kind of the bugger. It was real hard to get rid of real estate uh, outside the probate process without the use of a revocable trust. That's where you saw things like parents adding their kids on as joint owners to the house, which is a mistake, right? It, it just exposes mom and dad to the financial um, mishaps of the children. It's just a bad idea. But in Minnesota, ever since 2008, so 12 years now, we have recognized something called a transfer on death deed. And a transfer on death deed is the equivalent of putting a beneficiary designation on the title to your home. So if you have a married couple right now, my wife and I own our house jointly. So when the first of us dies, probably me because of poor diet and exercise habits. Um, <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> if I go first, the house automatically goes to my wife. That's what joint ownership means. No probate, nothing like that, right? And same thing if she goes before me because she's a terrible driver. Um, <laughs> So either way, when the first of us goes, there's going to be no probate. The problem is what happens when the second of us goes, right? Now you don't have any, anything in line. So a transfer on death deed acts as really a, a step two to that process. And it can say, now when the second of us dies, this is where we want the title to go. And we sign a deed and you file it at the county recorder's office and there it stays. So then when that second joint owner dies, or a single person, if they're the only owner, uh, title is going to transfer to the next person in line. And again, because you did that ahead of time, it happens outside the probate process. So for most people, good beneficiary designations on their dollars, transfer on death deed to their real estate, there is no need for the revocable trusts. They, they're just clunky and, and old-fashioned. They do work. There are still attorneys out there who, who push them. I don't see the need for them very often anymore. The question that I imagine people having is, why do you keep talking about probate? I have a will. Excellent. A will does not avoid probate. Uh, a will streamlines probate. Um, so what a will does, if we go back to sort of this um, regular couple, we're going to leave the trust out of it. Uh, and so they have some things that will avoid probate because some of their accounts have beneficiary designations on them. Maybe some of them don't. Uh, they got a house that they own jointly, but there's no transfer on death deed. So usually when the first spouse dies, there isn't a probate because that other spouse is either a joint owner or is the primary beneficiary. So there isn't a need for a probate there. When that second spouse dies, though, some of the things have beneficiary designations on them to the kids or whoever. Um, some of them don't. The house, in our example, doesn't. The house is just in that surviving spouse's name alone. We can't tell where those are supposed to go, right? If, I, if I'm a single person and I own a house and I die, you can't tell where it's supposed to go. 
that's what the probate process does. The, the probate process is the court overseeing where those leftover sorts of things have to go. And a will is a set of instructions to the court about where you want those things to go. So a will only covers assets that would otherwise have to go through probate. It doesn't turn them into assets that avoid probate. You do that by things like beneficiary designations and transfer on death deeds. So a, a will makes sure that a probate, if necessary, goes smoothly. But if we do a good job of, of getting your estate plan together, um, we can maybe avoid the need uh, for a probate altogether. So, Craig, if it's time for me to reach out and get a, in touch with an, an estate planning attorney, how do I reach you? Uh, either by phone, 952-886-7205, uh, or online. My website is uh, craiggoldmanlaw.com. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here. And what a treat to get all of your knowledge and mm just to be in the same room with you as a treat. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Change Agents. And thank you so much to Craig Goldman for being here with us. If you have a question that you'd like included on an upcoming show, please call us at 612-352-9177. Maybe you have further questions you'd like to have us address with an estate planning attorney and leave your questions there. We'll do our best to answer it for you. And also please hit subscribe on whatever podcast service you found us on. And also, if you can take a moment to rate and review the show. We're always interested in hearing your feedback and how we can make the show exactly what you need. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, we wish you the very best. This has been Change Agents, brought to you by Lisa Dunn with Remax Results. Lisa is a senior real estate specialist. You can find her online at thechangeagent.net. This podcast was produced by Minnesota Podcasting and recorded in their St. Paul studios. And they can be found online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the individual participants and may not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Remax Results or Minnesota Podcasting.